The following content is derived from the preaching ministry of Ashland Avenue Baptist Church in Oldham County, Kentucky, and is reproduced here for the benefit of its members. We exist to treasure and spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples, and we pray that God's grace among us would spread beyond us to the benefit of anyone who happens to listen. For more information about our church, go to ashlandoc.org. Thanks for listening. But now I invite you to stand as we read uh, John chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 1 through 39. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus says to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where are you going to get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying that I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman says to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. This is God's Word. may be seated. Now, as many of you know, I often open up my sermons, my introductions are, are related to parenting or marriage. And I remember Dan, after one of my practice sermons in one of our staff meetings, he, one of his critiques on me was, hey, I feel like every single one of your openings, every single one of your introductions has to do with your wife or your kids, and I said, uh, you know, I, I was like, yes, I, underst- I understand. I can see where that needs to change. But in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, they know I never leave my house. <laughs> because I've got four children now, a fifth on the way, and they're all six and under. 
So my, my experience, my weekly experience is a little bit limited. So here I'm going to burden you with another one of my family-based illustrations. Now, one of the things that you may have noticed about is that we have four very young kids. So when you look at my family layout, you don't think, oh man, they must have done a lot of family planning. They must have really mapped out how all this is going to work in the long run. Like, no, all of that stuff we kind of just pushed down the road. And one, So we basically, Kennedy and I, year by year, are just facing new challenges, and they all happen at relatively the same time. But here's one of the observations that I've made, is that childhood is basically a set of transitions that happen one after the other. And managing those transitions is a big part of the battle of parenting. So you have one of our sons, Miles, and they're all in different points right now. So Miles is still a young infant on his way to being a toddler. And Fuller is on his way from being a toddler to entering boyhood. And Reed is just somewhere. We don't really know. It's kind of hard to, to plot exact points with some of these kids. And, and Emmett's entered into boyhood on his way to being a young man. But these lines are not so clean. They're not so easy to plot on a graph. It's not a spectrum with a lot of divisions here. Because we find that some of our kids will, will have, have facets of tod being a toddler, but also entering boyhood. For example, last month, in the same exact day, I witnessed one of my kids, who will remain nameless, in the same day he did the dishes and also used his sock drawer as a urinal, all right? And this is in the same 24 hours, all right? So we're in the middle of this foggy transition that's moving, and, and, and what Kennedy and I find ourselves doing more and more in the morning, I mean, in the evenings, is, is this kind of pattern of lament that we're kind of, we're kind of in, where we, you know, uh, we, we try to recount all the good things that happened in the day, but normally we're just saying, oh, I thought we were past this. But we find ourselves saying that more and more in these, in these days. Kennedy and I were having a conversation recently about the conflict between Russia and Ukraine right now. And Kennedy, has, she just has a fantastic way of just simplifying things or saying, getting to the heart of the issue. And she, she said it like this as I was kind of, and, and again, like, she's a mother of four, so she's not exactly, like, plugged into current events, all right? So if she's ever hearing something, she's asking me about it at night when we go to bed. She's, she asked me what's going on. I give her my Cliff Notes Facebook version of, of what I think is going on. And she said, she said, I thought we were beyond this. I thought that we were past these, like, land squabbles. There's something about this conflict that just seems prehistoric. There's something that it makes, it, it's, it's like, it, it just feels like we're carrying clubs around in rocks and smashing each other's heads in again. Like there's something prehistoric about that. And if we look back at the past several years, the past few elections, we see ourselves more and more seeing that modernity has sold us a lie. We believe that we were past all of those things, that the ancestors that we read about in our biology textbooks our ancient ancestors who fought over land, that these people are somehow far away from us, 
These people are so distant, and we, the modern man, we're so evolved. We've got iPhones, we've got DoorDash, we've got all of these things. We're not going to fight over land. That seems so prehistoric. But here we find ourselves not so distant from them. The concepts of war and racism and grudges between nations all of a sudden don't seem so far away. And that's where we find ourselves in the text. And that's the conflict that Jesus enters into. Look with me at verses 1 through 9. He says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. You see, Jesus is entering into uh, another land, but he's running away from something. You see that? He says he learned that the Pharisees, right, this is the ruling class of priests in Judaism, they had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, than John the Baptist. All right, and we know how his story ends. He ends up martyred with his head on a platter. And so if John, a lesser threat, is martyred, we know that Jesus is even more at risk. Even though he wasn't doing the, the baptizing himself, but his disciples were baptizing. So he leaves Judea and departs again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, when we read that had to pass through Samaria, you might think, oh, well, he has to do this. He's constrained to do this. It's not clear from the text, but what's clear is that Jesus is not restrained in any way other than by divine appointment. His desire is to do his Father's will, and he goes where that must be done. So he, he, goes, he goes through Samaria, which is not a route that a Jew would normally have taken. And we'll find out why here in a moment. So it says, he came to the town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. And it was about the sixth hour. So Jesus is in a foreign land. And after a long day's journey, it is the sixth hour in the Middle East. The sixth hour is noon. All right, now listen. You think you know what hot is. You think you know what it means to be hot. Pastor Casey is from Alabama. He thinks he knows what it means to be hot. None of you have ever spent noon in the Middle East. Maybe Logan has. That's true heat. Now, I remember my first trip to Egypt uh, went to visit my family. I remember going on a camel ride to go to the pyramids. We were on our way there, and I remember about to pass out because I had never felt this much heat. But here we see Jesus is wearied. He's wearied. Look at Jesus. I know, look at, put, put in your mind's eye, what do you see when you think of Jesus? You probably think of him uh, on the cross first. Maybe you think of him uh, breaking bread at the Last Supper with that famous painting. But I'll bet you none of you see Jesus like... <gasps> Can you guys go get me a snack? Do you guys have any orange slices? I'm getting a little worn out. But here Jesus in his true humanity is wearied. He's tired. And so his disciples go to get him some food. And he stays at the well to drink some water and restore himself. 
And it says, And a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So here's, here's the key. All right, you're dealing with two groups of people that despise each other. All right, the Jews viewed the Samaritans, and this is, this is not politically correct. This is the terminology they would have used. Viewed them as half-breeds. And in a lot of ways, they kind of were. They had a syncretistic or a, a combination of religions, okay? They weren't, they weren't Jews. They weren't following after Yahweh. They accepted the first five books of the Bible. They accepted the Torah, but they also weaved in their own naturalistic religion. Okay, so they've kind of made this disfigured form of religion. And the, and the, the Samaritans didn't view the Jews in, in a good light at all. They viewed them as stuck up, as elitists. Now these people despised each other so much so that it was unlikely that Jesus, a Jew, would have taken a route through Samarit Samaria. Now, that's another level of petty that you and I don't know, okay? None of us hate someone that much that we would be like, all right, I'm not even going to drive by their house to get to church. I'm taking the other way around, a longer route to get to church in the morning because I don't like this person, okay? But that's the level of disdain we see between these two communities. They wouldn't even, a Jew wouldn't even walk through Samaria. It was beneath them let alone ask a, Samar a Samaritan for water. But here we see she's shocked because Jesus is making a connection with her. Jesus is reaching through so many barriers that explain why she's so confused. He's reaching through a gender barrier. It's unlikely that a, a man and a woman would even speak to each other if they were not with their spouses, all right? It would be strange in this culture for a man to approach a, a, man to approach a woman and speak to them alone, especially if one of them uh, was a sinner, which leads us to a moral barrier that Jesus is reaching across, right? The Samaritans were viewed as not even Gentiles, worse than Gentiles, they were viewed as this half-breed, and Jesus reaches across someone who a Jew would never associate with, never speak to, and Jesus asks her for a drink of water and begins a conversation. You see, Jesus is not concerned with the battles that are raging around him in the day. Jesus doesn't find him caught up in one side or the other, like we find ourselves so many times doing, taking sides in the battles of the day and losing sight that every single person that we come across, no matter whether they're conservative, they're liberal, no matter where they come from in life, they're image bearers. They've been imprinted with the impression of God. Each of them has a soul. Each of them is worthy of dignity. Each of them is worthy of our attention and our focus. And that's what we see Jesus doing. You see, it's in these kinds of moments, I know that me, I know my own heart, okay? When am I least likely to engage with a neighbor? If my neighbor across the street says, hey man, hey, hey, what's going on? Can you help me take a look at something? When am I most likely to say no? This situation, I'm tired, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, I want to go lay down, all right? 
All of these physical barriers would have stopped me, but Jesus takes the time and engages with this image bearer. And let's see the words that he has for her. Look at me, verses 10 through 14. It says, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. So we see that this well is not just like any other well. This well has a historic place in the tradition of the Jews. All right, this is the well that Joseph received as a gift from his father. This is a landmark. So if you're looking at the map, right, you're on your traveler's map, there's going to be a little star on there. It says, this is the well that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. This is a landmark. You've got to visit it. This is a special well. Now, what is Jesus talking about here? Because he's employing his usually, his as usual cryptic language. He begins talking about water. He says, I'm going to give you living water. Now, this living, living water is what we would understand to be running water, which is a luxury that we know all too much about, so much so that it can make it really difficult to us, for us to understand what's happening in the text. All right? You have to understand in this day and age, there's no faucets. All right? There's no aqueducts going through Samaria. The only way you are going to get water is by finding a fresh stream of running water, not a common thing to find in the Middle East, right? All right? Or you have to wait for it to rain to fill up your well. Those are the, that's the, those are the ways that you're getting water. And for someone to offer you living, running, clean water, Right? This, was to, this was a treasure that not even money could buy. He's offering her something that no amount of money could buy for. Running water was more than valuable. It was priceless. And so he says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Well, we know that Jesus isn't really talking about water here, is he? Right? But he's using the occasion, he's using the context of his encounter to explain to her something about what the gospel is. So he says, what he's saying is that I have something for you. I have something for you that is so necessary for you, so fundamental to human need. Right? If there is one thing you have in common with every single human being who's been born, you need water. It is the most Basic human need, water, food. These are the two things that you absolutely need without a doubt, no matter what, to survive. And Jesus is saying, I have something that fundamental that you need. And he's talking about complete soul satisfaction and contentment that only comes through his presence and blessing. What he's talking about when he's talking about living water 
is the complete soul satisfaction and contentment that comes along with his presence and his blessing. And he goes on even more than that. And he says, whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. Even more, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He's not just offering access to water. He's not just offering access to water. He's offering that the source of this life, this inner vitality, this satisfaction in God, will reside within you. Meaning that no one can take it away. It's ever-present, ever-producing that life giving satisfaction in God. Believers, that is what you have. That is what you have. You have a spring, the Holy Spirit, God Himself dwelling within you, producing life, supernatural life in you at all times. Man, I don't know about you, but that just doesn't seem like my experience. You see, what God has given us in Christ, what he's given us in the Holy Spirit that he's implanted in us is an ever-present access to being completely satisfied in him. You know, I was at a friend's house the other day for a birthday party, for one of his kids' birthday party. So naturally... You know, the moms and the kids, they all got into a room and played and, and talked. And then the guys went into a different room and started trying to entertain themselves. So naturally, uh, we began telling stories. And of course, these were all edifying stories. These were all very serious. Uh, no, no, we were talking about some of the dumbest things you could imagine. All right, but we're having a good time together. But then the subject comes up of how each of us used to use uh, tobacco, used to use nicotine products in the past. And we're talking about, oh yeah, I used to do this, oh yeah, I used to do this, oh yeah, super great conversation, guys, right? But then we, have a we had a brother who was talking about, oh yeah, I just, I just gave up smoking just a few months ago. And so we began talking about that. And he, he said, this is what he said, he said, you know, I had tried dozens of times to quit. I had tried dozens of times to give up this habit, but it wasn't until I met Jesus that I was able to actually give it up. Now, here, here, here's, the, here's the thing. Yes, that's great. The question you may be asking yourself is, has anyone given up smoking without Jesus? Yeah, I mean, of, of course. But the source of that change is completely different, and that makes all the difference. You see, there's a difference between the transformation that God does from the inside out versus the arm-twisting moralism that we can reach to. You see, the person who just gives up smoking because it's bad for them, okay, great. All right, they, they, they go cold turkey, they, give it, they quit, and they, they move on. But nothing on the inside has changed. They've been persuaded by an argument and maybe an appeal to their better health. But at the end of the day, if they could have another cigarette, they would. If it wasn't bad for them, right, they would have another one, right? If the utilitarian argument were to go. The difference here in this brother was that God had produced in him 
a joy and a satisfaction that provided and exceeded the pleasure that he had received from that habit in the past. You see, that's the way Jesus transforms people. Not by twisting your arm and getting you to go to church and say, oh yeah, I should live my life this way. I should share the gospel with my neighbor. I should give up smoking. I should do this. I shouldn't do that. But the way that Jesus transforms is by giving you something altogether better than what any of your temptations has to offer. So for you in this room who are struggling with an alcohol dependence, you keep going back to that well, expecting it to give you joy, expecting it to numb your pain. For those who are experimenting, who are doing drugs, or who are, who are even trying to even stop smoking and can't do it. The message that I have for you this morning is not that you are too focused on your pleasure. You're not focused enough on it. Imagine with me, you come to a man in a bar. Right? He's, he's, he's drunk. Uh, he's had plenty of beers that night. Imagine you go and talk to them and you say, Hey, man, I have got a treasure for you in the other room if you'll just get up and move there. Right? All you have to do is give up drinking. I've got a treasure for you that will not only give you limitless supplies of joy, but it could never be threatened. Go to this other room, follow me there. And he says, no, I'm going to stay with what I've got. Would you say that this man is too focused on his own pleasure? He's too selfish? I would say he's not selfish enough. He's not focused on pleasure enough. This is what God offers to each and every one of us. This treasure, this all-satisfying water that, can, that will be in us. See, that is the way that the gospel changes us. Well, let's see how she responds in verses 15 through 18. It says, The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Okay, so she still thinks we're talking about water. She says, okay, yeah, that sounds like a good deal. I don't want to be thirsty anymore, and I definitely don't want to have to come here to draw water. And after all, she's coming at a strange hour. She's coming at noon in the hottest day, in the hottest part of the day. This is an uncommon thing to happen culturally. You see, when women would go to gather water for all of the household duties they would have to give their children water to drink, right, the first thing you do when you wake up is you make your trip to the watering hole, right? With a bun- with, and it wasn't, just, it wasn't just like that. It was a communal thing. All the women would go in the morning to go get water together, but this woman finds herself alone going in the middle of the day, at the hottest point of the day. So there's something going on here that we, uh, we can't see. And so she just says, yes, I would love that water. I'd love to avoid the noonday sun. I'd love so I don't have to make the trip here. And Jesus says to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I've got no husband. And Jesus says to her, you're right in saying that I have no husband, for you've had five. And the one you now have is not your husband. Now this is the key to understanding the plight of this woman. 
Why is she coming to the well in the middle of the day? Why is she alone? Why is it so attractive to her that she wouldn't have to make the trip to the well? She's a moral outcast in her own community. She's had five husbands, right? It's not clear from the text whether they've died or whether they've been failed relationships, but what's important is that her current husband, her current, the current man she's living with is not her husband. This would not have been acceptable in any Samaritan society. She was an outcast in her own home. In Jesus, prophetically, she never lets on that she's living with someone who's not her husband. But Jesus, prophetically, says, go, call your husband to come here if you want this water. See, Jesus is not interested in the easy yes she gave before. Jesus is not interested in, get, in an easy believism where you get to come to Jesus because of all of his benefits, but don't count the cost of following Jesus. So he says, go call your husband and come here. And she knows. Jesus is addressing the deepest point of pain and shame in this woman's life. Look at what it's doing to her. The shame. She's shaping her whole life around it. She's going to the well at different times than all the other women. We can under, you, many of you could understand that if you've been the subject of whispers, the whispers of gossip in the past, of scandal. But also, she's deflecting. Jesus asks her directly, say, go get your husband. And she says, I have your husband. Oh, it's just a half-truth. It's a deflection. She doesn't want to admit to him that she is living in adultery. She's living with a man who is not her husband. She doesn't want to admit that to him, but he knows. And her life is so shaped around this point of shame. She's learned how to hold it. She's learned how to keep others from recognizing it. She doesn't want to be seen. She's, her whole life has become a, a self-protection mechanism. That's what her whole life is revolved around, is protecting this one sore spot, the spot that still hurts. If someone were to bring it up, you would, you would cringe. Now, this is something that each one of us has experienced, believe it or not. Each one of us has points in our lives, in our histories, even in our current lives, that if anyone found out, if anyone saw, if anyone truly knew, I would be undone. That's death to me, would be if someone found out. And know that these are the points these are, not the, these are the points that Jesus doesn't avoid. These are not things that he goes around and we don't talk about. This is where Jesus applies the pressure, the great physician. He finds the point in your life of deepest pain, shame, and regret, and he goes to work there. Each of us has done this in the past. We've projected an image of who we want people to think we are. But if you're doing that today, if you're hiding 
right? If, you, if, you're, if you're in the church and you're in an equipped group, you're in a Bible fellowship group, you're here every Sunday, you said these people know me, they know where I work, they know what I'm sad about, they know 99%, but there's this 1%. There's this one thing that I'm never going to tell them. Know that you are completely anonymous in this church. You are unknown. It is in that place where Jesus wants to do his very best work, but only when they're brought to light. And know this, if you don't bring it to light, like the Samaritan woman didn't, she tried to hide it, Jesus himself, he will bring it to light. He will bring it to life. Not to put you to shame, but he wants to deal with your shame. He wants to deal with your sin in the light so his grace might be evident to everyone. This is where Jesus does his best work. And this is where he wants to do his healing. Let's see how she responds in verses 19 through 26. It says, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Well, duh. All right, so he just says, oh, yeah, you've had five husbands, uh, you know, and the man you're living with. He says prophetically, I perceive, she says, I perceive you're a prophet. That's like the understatement of the year. I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, this is an experience we've all had. Have you ever been in that moment where you're sharing the gospel with someone and it gets, starts to get personal? Okay, it starts to be about sin. It starts to be about shame. It starts to be about history and repentance, the tough stuff, all right? The conversation veers in that direction, and they're like, oh, what do you think about LGBTQ+, what do you think about that? What, what, I mean, what do, you, what do you think about Donald Trump? What do you think about this, right? It's a deflection to the, to the abstract, a deflection to the theological. Right? It's always much easier to talk theology than talk about character, than talk about sin, than talk about repentance. Now listen, I'm a, I'm a theology nerd. Like if you've been to my office downstairs, if you've been to my home, I've got books everywhere. But it is so common for us to use theology as a shield to make us feel better about bad character, bad personal character. Right? We often use it as a deflection. And that happens a lot in our evangelism encounters with people. Right? He deflects. But, and notice that Jesus continues. All right? He answers he, her question. He doesn't dismiss the question. He knows that it is an important question, but it's not the issue at hand. So Jesus masterfully moves the, the conversation back, and he says, but... He says, he's, well, he says, woman, we believe the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So she's asking, well, should I worship the temp, the, the, at the temple here in Samaria or should I go to Jerusalem? This was the battle. This was a theological debate that was happening between, I wouldn't say debate, a disagreement between Samaritans and the Jews. The Jews were adamant, you have to come to Jerusalem to worship the true and living God. The Samaritans said, here, you have to meet at this temple on this mountain to worship the true and living God. And Jesus gives her an answer that doesn't satisfy either party. He says this. He says, There's, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation 
is from the Jews. So he's saying that the Jew, from the Jewish tradition, from the Jewish lineage is where salvation will come, not from your syncretistic, not from your, your blended uh, religion that the Samaritans have crafted for themselves, but it is from the lineage of the Jews that salvation will come. But the hour is coming and is now here. It's both coming in the future and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. What is this hour that He's talking about when worshipers will not worship just emotionally in the spirit and not just in truth with their theology books, but their life isn't in accordance with it, but when they will worship in spirit and truth. What is this hour? It is the hour of Jesus' death. The hour of Jesus' death, the day of his death, his crucifixion, stands at the center of every portion of the book of John. It is anticipating when Jesus himself will be lifted up on the cross and he will die for the sins of his people. And in, in these moments, in the moment of his crucifixion, he makes possible not just your being saved, but that you will be able to worship God in a way that it was previously completely impossible. You will, have, you will have a new capacity to worship God in spirit and in truth. See, our gospel is not just a gospel of saving us, of bringing us back to zero, of balancing our checkbook, of just paying for our debts, but he's also putting in us that living water that will allow us to worship God in a completely new way. But he's saying that you don't have to wait for my crucifixion for that. The hour is now here. With the coming of Jesus, we see that salvation, that life with God, a relationship with him, is no longer restricted to the Jews to be mediated by a high priest in an ornate robe, but that kind of worship is available to every single person who calls on the name of Jesus as Lord. What we've come to in this moment is a new age in the redemptive history of the Bible. Let's see how the woman responds to this. Look at verse uh, 25. It says, The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. But when he comes, he will tell us all things. Man, can you imagine? Jesus keeps going back and forth and back and forth with her. She is not going to give in. She said, this is kind of like the, the last-ditch effort. Right When someone's kind of resisting uh, the gospel, when someone's kind of can't contend with the truth that is being spoken to them anymore, they just say, yeah, one day we'll all find out. No one knows for sure. I'm agnostic. I can't know this for sure. And Jesus responds. He says, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now we've just finished a sermon series through the book of John, through the I am statements. Right? We've seen that time and time again, Jesus revealing himself. But this is the first one. And look at who Jesus is making this self-revelation to first. It's not to his inner circle. It's not to the disciples. You'd think he would let in a little early. He'd give them the backstage pass. Right? They'd know who he is. And it's not to Nicodemus 
who's an insider in the Jewish tradition. He's a Jew among Jews. He's educated. He's willing to learn. He came to Jesus and called him rabbi. Jesus doesn't reveal himself to him. But it's to this outcast. This woman who nobody wanted to talk to. This woman who, by the rules of the day, he had no business being in a conversation with. And it is to this woman he reveals himself to her. This is how Jesus works. This is how the gospel moves. Jesus reveals himself to those who are least deserving. He reveals himself to those who you and I would never think, oh, that person would be a great fit in the kingdom of God. So Jesus reveals himself to her, and she, she is transformed. He says, when the, so when just then when the disciples came back, they marveled. So you remember, the disciples were at Wendy's picking up lunch, right, this whole time. They missed this whole deal. They're normally kind of like his bodyguards, right? The, they saw themselves as kind of the secret service, right? To keep the unworthy people away from the great rabbi. So when the disciples come back, they marvel that he's talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Look at what the portrait of this woman that we see from beginning to end. This is the same woman that wouldn't show her face at the well when other people were around. This is the same woman who wouldn't reveal her shame to Jesus. Terrified that, so, that she'd be found out, that she'd be seen, and here she is. She runs to the very people she's been avoiding. And she comes to them and says, look at Christ, come and see. He told me all that I ever did. Look at the transformation that's happened. The point of deepest pain in her life has not just been protected. It's been truly healed. It's been truly healed by the grace of Jesus Christ. It's no longer a pain point for her. She's no longer ashamed of her history. She didn't run into a different town where people might not know her past. She can get a fresh start. She goes to the very people who've been whispering about her. She was ashamed to speak with. She was ashamed to be seen at the well with. And she preaches the gospel to them. Now look with me at how, so she's been transformed. She's, her heart has been made new. Her, her wounds have been healed. But that's not where the gospel stops. It never ends with just personal healing. Right? The, the, the gospel then is multiplied. Look with me in verses 30 through 39. It says, they, then they went out of the town and were coming to him. So there's an immediate response. These, the, the Samaritans in the town hear the simple witness of this woman, and they leave and they come to see Jesus. But meanwhile, while all this is going on, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? These guys don't get it. 
All right, they're like, did he have like a granola bar that we didn't know about? Like he was hungry, but now he's not hungry. Can someone explain that to me? Jesus said to to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus has another source of nourishment. He has another source of energy. His energy is to see the will of God done. And not just in general. In this case, his energy, what nourishes him, is seeing sinners repent and believe the gospel, to have their wounds healed, to become worshipers in spirit and in truth. To see a sinner repent of their sin is the choicest prize that we can give to Jesus. That is the sight that pleases him, that nourishes him. It is the same hunger that we ought to have. See, our life is characterized by what satisfies us. What is it the thing that you're pining after? What is it the thing that you want? Maybe you're single and you're desiring a spouse. You've been asking for one for years and years and it's still not happening. You're pining for this thing. Or maybe it's the dream situation, a perfect life situation between your job and your family where you have time to do everything you want and make plenty on the side. Have, have a perfect life situation or a perfect job situation. You've been pursuing this a goal for years and years and you just haven't made it yet and you dream of that. What we see here in Jesus is a new hunger for us, a hunger to see sinners repent and believe the gospel. Brothers and sisters, this is what our prayer ought to sound like. Father, God, I want these things. I want a spouse. I want, a, I want the job that, that's going to be a place where I can serve with the best of my abilities. I want these things. But before you give me any of these things, Lord, give me one sinner who repents. Give me one sinner who has new life in Christ, who is dead and becomes supernaturally alive in the receiving of the Holy Spirit and getting a new heart. Lord, is that, church, is that your prayer? Is that what drives you? Is that what you most desire? Is that the thing you want to see the most alongside with Jesus? And Jesus continues to explain what he means. His food is to do the will of him who sent him and to accomplish his work. And he gives a strange, kind of hard to understand parable. He says, do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So that sower and reaper might rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into your labor. So this is kind of hard to understand because we're not exactly in an agrarian culture anymore, right? Hey, if I want to get uh, some fresh produce, I go to the store and buy it, right? If, I, if, I have, if there's something at the house that I need I don't have enough of, I can go to Walmart and go pick it up. But here he's speaking of, uh, of those who are involved in agricultural life to the farmers. He's saying, well, normally you sow the seeds And then it isn't until months later that you're able to harvest. So he's saying that 
that it, you're used to hearing that, that you have to wait. You sow the seed and you have to wait until the harvest. Now, this parable, Jesus often, when he speaks in parables, they work on several levels, right? Primarily, right, he's saying that the ministry of the prophets, the ministry of the prophets, where, like Ezekiel, where he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Ezekiel prophesied of a time where God himself was put his spirit in you and give you a new heart, but it was always looking towards the future. It was a not yet concept. It was a prophecy for later. And Jesus is saying that the time is now. We've entered a new age in redemptive history. We are in the age of the harvest where all the promises of God that were given in the past are beginning their fulfillment now with the arrival of Jesus Christ. But it also means on another level right, that John the Baptist, who's previously ministered in this area, maybe even in this same town, right, while not present, he sowed the seeds of, of, of the good news of the gospel of the coming Messiah, he sowed the seeds, and then this woman, this woman who no one would have expected to become a mouthpiece for God's own message to humanity, she goes to the town and she begins the harvest. She harvested what John the Baptist had begun to sow the seeds for. But we're starting to notice a pattern here, is that there's no longer any division between the sower and the reaper. And this has everything to do with the way we preach the gospel. You see, we, have, we often have a binary understanding of evangelism, right? You think, hey, I'm going to go invite my friend to church. Well, and then they say, no, why would you ever ask me that? Oh, that was a failure. And then you go to another person, you, you share the gospel with them, invite them to church. They're like, yeah, I'd love to believe right now. Let's do it. And you're like, oh, wait, this is a success. It's a zero-sum game be between success and failure. And what Jesus is doing is leveling that. He's leveling that. Where even if you share the gospel with zero fruit, you have the same exact reason to rejoice that the harvester does. The one who actually leads this person to Christ. What, what Jesus is doing for us here, church, is he's freeing us to fail at evangelism. He's freeing us to not see a one soul as the only, as the only uh, success in evangelism. He's changing, he's changing the judgment. He's changing what we're judging ourselves on from harvesting and, and, and sowing to simply faithfulness. So this, the, the person, when they share the gospel with someone, if they turn you away and send you packing, you could say, praise God. Praise God. He is at work in this sinner's heart. I'm going to pray that someone would harvest the seed that I just planted. This is, what we, this is our new way to think about evangelism. It should encourage us. Now, here's the important thing. I, well, let's look at, look at this. Look at the what happens when the woman shares the gospel. So when she goes in and says, can this be the Christ? In verse 30, she says, they went out of the town and were coming to him. And then look at, skip down to verse 39. It says, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. 
he told me all that I ever did. Now, she, what we notice here is that she hasn't really said that much to these people. She said, can this be the Christ? He told me all that I ever did. Come and see. And in, 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 verse, in verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of this testimony. Now listen, this is, this is obviously not a, a great gospel presentation, right? If we're, have, if we're watching the, the game show, America's got gospel presentations, Right? And you've got people, they're coming up and they're sharing the, the three circles diagram and they're moving between all these masterfully applying uh, the, 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 the evangelism, the evangelism encounter to the person's life. And they just seem to already know what to say. Right? And then you've got people who are doing the Romans road. They've got that all figured out. And they hit every single base on the Romans road and perfectly communicate the gospel. If, if this woman is on that game show, she's getting the red buzzer immediately. Hey, come see a guy who, who's, who, did all, who's, who told me all I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Right? This is not something that we would rank as a very skillful gospel presentation. It's simply what she knows. You see, Jesus didn't stop after he revealed himself at her. He didn't stop and give her like a three-week discipleship class. He didn't take her, oh, like now, now it's time for our six-week evangelism class where you'll learn these techniques. No, she simply tells what she's experienced and invites them to come. This is the model for evangelism. Now, you, you here may be too nervous you may feel, man, I am not qualified to share the gospel with anyone. If they ask me a question, if they ask me any hard questions, I'm going to crumble. Listen, that's okay. The model that we have for evangelism here that we're seeing in this woman is so simple. Jacob Ayler, baptized today, could do this. He could simply say what happened to him. That's what we heard. He simply told us what he's experienced And just invites, invite them to come. So that's all you have to do when you're sharing the gospel with your coworkers, with your neighbors, with your family members. Don't, don't get too complicated, all right? Tell them what you've experienced. Invite them to come. Tell them your testimony. Pastor Casey's BFG is in a great practice. They all share uh, their testimonies, each one, each week. They share their testimony about that, how they first met Jesus. Right? This isn't just something we should be sharing with people in our BFGs. We should be sharing our story with people outside of the room. But it doesn't even have to be your whole story. You could simply say, this is what God has been teaching me this week. Do you want to come to church with me on Sunday? That is what faithfulness looks like. It is simple. And none of this requires giftedness. None of this requires an inordinate amount of giftedness. We simply tell them our experience and invite them to come. So today, church, I want to challenge you. In the Welcome Center, we have all of our invite cards. We ordered a thousand of them. And we've arranged them into stacks of ten. Now here's what I want you to do. I want you to take five of those cards. Firstly, I want every single person in this room to walk out with a stack of these cards, a stack of ten. Here's what I want you to do. Take five of those cards. Put them somewhere where someone is just going to happen upon it. Could be McDonald's. Could be your office. Could be the coffee shop. Leave them somewhere where it's okay with the, with the establishment. It's okay with the owners. You leave them there. 
and just leave them there. Sow the seeds. All right? So I want to challenge you to take five of those and just leave them somewhere. And I want you to take the other five, take the other five and invite someone personally. And this doesn't have to be a whole thing. You don't have to bring up their, their, their previous divorces. All right? Like, like Jesus does here. And say, haven't you been divorced three times? You don't need to do that. All right? That's not prescribed to us here. All right? It's going to get weird. You don't want to do that. It's, it's just not a good practice. Simply say, hey, listen, I love my church. And I would love for you to join me there on Easter Sunday. Give them the card and go rejoice. And if you get an opportunity, if you see a window where you get to share the gospel yourself, I encourage you to do this. But I want you to see a pattern here in the text. And this is where we'll close. That there is an expectation. That this, this passage, the Bible, is brimming with optimism with, about about the age that we're living in. You see, we might look around and we say, this is a morally dark time. Things are not going well in our culture. All right? People seem even more resistant to the gospel than ever before. My workplace, if I, people are, are so freaked out when I tell them that I go to church. It seems so dark there. But this is what Jesus has authoritatively said here. He says, look outside. The fields are white for harvest. The fields are white for harvest. So look outside. Look in your workplace. Look in your very own home. Jesus says the fields are white for harvest. And God himself is not passively sitting by waiting for you to act. But he says he's already seeking such worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Let's pray together.